This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt jolly it is friday and we've got a crack a few today James Graham, you will know, he's the genius behind this house and Brexit on Civil War and Labour of Love and Ink and loads of plays which cut across politics and the media and so on. Well, he's got a new play, it's called Best of Enemies, uh, and it recreates, wait for it, I mean, even by his standards, this is his niche, some conversations which happened 50 years ago between William Buckley and Gore Vidal in America and it basically gave birth to uh, extreme punditry, the culture wars, identity politics. Anyway, the, the, it's all based on uh, those conversations. It's terrific. And we've uh, got a chat with James Graham and the director, Jeremy Herring. That's coming up. But first, our economist panel, and it's Friday, so it must be Melanie Reid and James Forsyth. Let's talk about uh, France and the, uh, the diplomatic wisdom of posting your letters on Twitter. James, was it a mistake for Boris Johnson to do that, or are the French being silly? It's both. I think, look, I think putting the letter up on Twitter was not a acceptable move by the UK. It also, French are being petty. In are they really saying James, that this James, is... James, we're, we're getting about every other word. Uh, I think we can sort of uh, work out what's going on there. Uh, but let's ask uh, Melanie, what do you think? Was it was it sensible? Boris Johnson posts the letter on Twitter. Pretty Patel gets uh, uninvited from the talks at the weekend, none of which really goes anyway to, to solving this problem. I thought it was fairly unsen- uh, un- unsensible thing to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, not very silly to try and do things. And the French are sensitive about this. And, you know, there is a big summit coming with 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 the Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, France are all due at the summit Calais on Sunday. And, you know, it would be it would be sensible to um, now that we're out of we're out of the gang, the EU to to, you know, we need them. Uh, it would have been nice to, to behave like big boys and, and go along or big girls in Pretty Patel's case and, and go along, and be sensible. But, you know, um, no, it's it's all you use the megaphone and, and, and broadcast it to the people, won't you? You know, it's dumb, I think, dumb. I suppose, James, there was a, there was a way that Boris Johnson could have put out a statement through the press office which said, I've written to Emmanuel Macron and made these suggestions without sticking the whole thing out on Twitter and looking like he's trying to embarrass 
Macron ahead of these talks. Yes, and I think the other challenge here is that the, the UK is always going to be more concerned about people entering its territory than France is about people leaving its. And I think the, I think the kind of French view is, look, we have more asylum claims than the UK does. So this idea of immediate returns to France, you know, what, what's in that for us, I think, is, is the kind of subtext of the French annoyance. I also think there is a slight bit of hypocrisy, considering how keen on Twitter diplomacy uh, <laughs> Macron's Europe minister, Clement Bone, is. I mean, hardly, hardly a, few, every, a week goes by without him posting some tweet attacking perfidious Albion on Twitter. So, yeah, so, but, but I think everyone, I mean, I think it is depressing, though, that the, 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 the Anglo-French relationship is in a really bad state. And even this tragedy hasn't made the two sides, London and Paris, put kind of point scoring aside. I suppose that, that's the thing, because I, I sort of thought yesterday that uh, it was, you know, this might have been that terrible tragedy the day before yesterday might have been the thing where everyone sort of took a deep breath and said, right, fine, let's stop mucking about. Let's actually sort this out. Uh, and that, that was quite a short lived hope. Yes, I, I think the other, I think the horrible truth though is that there there is it is very hard to see what the solution to this problem is within the current international legal framework. And and, and uh, is that the thing that if it, basically because there isn't an obvious solution, it then just becomes a political football. That no one's going to solve the problem. So let's see if you can bolster your poll ratings ahead of the elections next year. Yeah, or well, let's see where you can shift the blame to. I think I think there there is I think part of the problem is that that the world has signed up to a whole bunch of agreements and there is a question about whether the world has actually thought through what they mean. And I think it is it is no coincidence that when Poland was dealing with the situation on its border with Belarus, it, it established a kind of no go zone for journalists and NGOs. So it, it so essentially no one could check whether it was complying with its international obligations or not. There was also that fascinating article in the Times, the other article in the Times today, with the spotlight on the German connection and how this is, how organised this is now, how absolutely integrated the whole thing and professional it is with, with coming from people smuggling gangs in Germany, buying boats in Germany, coming, coming from China. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of, it's like an old, it's, it's like one of the old trading routes now. And you don't break that just by, um, you know, one day in a summit uh, in Calais, sadly. Yeah, and I suppose that's the, that it's a complicated issue and uh, nobody really wants to, wants to, to grapple with it. Uh, so that's the relationship with uh, France. What about our relationship with Germany, James? Um, you've tackled Olaf Scholz uh, in your column today. Yeah, I think the new German government is going to be a mixed bag for the UK, but I think on Brexit it's going to be more difficult to deal with. I mean, look, Angela Merkel never rode to the rescue in the way that some Brexiteers hoped she would. But she was a, a kind of calming presence when some people were getting very excited. And I think without her, uh, it's less likely there would have been a trade deal between the UK and the EU, and much more likely that, that you would have had a kind of full-on vaccine war. And I think the question now is that kind of Olaf Scholz will, will hew more closely to Emmanuel Macron. And, and for all the reasons we've been discussing, that is going to be problematic for the UK. Are you, are you a close follower of German politics, Melanie? Well, funnily enough, I know a little bit about this, um, and I, I'm, I actually disagree with James on that. I, I think, I think Schultz is actually a pretty good bloke. Did you see the thing on um, Channel Four News when Matt? It was just before the election when Matt Fry asked him about um, sending German truckers back to sending some German truckers over to Britain to help us, and. Um, he answered, and he answered in English, 
and he answered with with humor and charm. He's very fluent. I mean, Merkel never spoke English in public, even though she could. And he was sort of gently assured and totally charming and controlled and 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 he made that you know he made a couple of little digs like you know well if you know free movement you 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 know it was up to you that you you got out of the union and everything but he even made a sign you know with a steering wheel he didn't make a brum brum noise that would please would please boris but he 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 did the sort of you know uh, everyone wants to be a trucker and i'm sure that if you got your living condi- your your working conditions for truckers up a bit um we we make lots of german truckers and you know he wasn't he i don't think um you could read into that a man who is any way um uh you know n- not going to carry on being being nice to to uh, uh, being very pleasant and competent with the british <laughs> um go on james you you make make the counter argument I actually thought the telling thing about was was the way in which he made, as Melanie said, he made that dig about free movement. And I think in, in this is part of the challenge for, for relations between uh, the UK and France and Germany and other EU member states. Can you get beyond Brexit? And I think you're never going to get beyond Brexit if both sides want to go back to Brexit at every opportunity. If everyone wants to go back to what didn't work before, the relationship that didn't work before, rather than discussing a new relationship, you're never going to be able to move on. And I think that is the danger. You know, if your response to, is to the supply chain crisis is to say, oh, well, the UK made it worse for itself by deciding to leave the EU, you know, that, that isn't going to engender, I don't think, good relations between London and Berlin. Uh, yeah, we'll see how that, um, <laughs> whether we're not related. It's like a competition of who we can have the toughest relations with. Um, uh, uh, let's talk about um, uh, emotions. Be less British about feelings, Duke of Cambridge urges at emergency services mental health meeting. Um, uh, what did you make of this, Melanie? Well, I stiff up a lip in it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's all about us Brits. And, um, uh, you know... I, what, what sort of amuses me about when you get the royals doing all this stuff, it's actually about them, isn't it? It's, you know, it's, it's, I think, I think to some extent they project their problems onto us because I think we're a lot better at, at, at talking about our emotions than uh, a lot of Brits are a lot better at talking, letting things out than they are. But, um, having said all that, it's very worthy. It's very, very worthy because, um, <laughs> You know, if if you are in the emergency services, you do spend an awful lot of your life doing the things, ghastly things. You know, picking bits of bodies up from car accidents on the motorway, and 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 you know, it's it's grim and it's awful. And um, you, we do underestimate what the, what people go through who do the dirty jobs that nobody else in society wants to do. We do underestimate what they go through, and um, any support we can give them is brilliant. But, um, uh, you know, let's not stop them having black humour, because I think one of the biggest therapies of all, I know, because I'm, I'm kind of halfway there myself, one of the biggest therapies of all when, when uh, you know, things are emotionally tough is to be able to laugh at them. So, you know, heavens above, let's not be too, um, let, let, let's let emergency services tell their dark jokes sometimes that seems like uh, uh top advice are you, are you someone who lets all your emotions your all your emotions hang out james 
I, mean, I think it depends, depends who you're with, doesn't it? <laughs> that's <laughs> probably right. That's 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 <laughs> uh, that's uh, that is probably uh, the case. And all I don't know. It's it's it's, it's a weird thing because probably there's quite a lot of people who do have sort of emotional diarrhea about things, but it's the people who probably do need a bit more support who don't always get it. That's my sort of slight sense. I also think, as, as Melanie said, that there's, I think there's no one size fits all. Um, solution to how to deal with these problems. As, as Melanie said, some people find it better to, to to laugh about these things. Other people need to talk about them. Uh, or, uh, I think we should. I think we should just accept that let everyone deal with these things in the way that is best for them. Think, yeah, there, there are. I mean, you will find that the people in the the people who go into the emergency services tend to be a bit self-selecting. You know, they 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 are they do have a pretty tough call. They have to. Um, and I think, I think, uh, you know, it's the same with the army or whatever, the military, um, you know, unless you can, unless you can, can cope with the really bad stuff, you don't go there. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's probably right. And just finally, Mel, uh, Melanie, um, uh, <laughs> mixed toilets. Uh, apparently <laughs> they've been, um, uh, introduced in a, uh, Scottish secondary schools. Um, but, uh, girls are refusing to use them because because of dirty boys, isn't it? <laughs> I, I mean, this is one of those stories that, you know, if, if the parent of any teenage girl or even anyone who remembers being a teenage girl or knows what teenage boys are like could have told you this was coming a million miles away. <laughs> the girls, girls are refusing to use general neutral toilets in Scottish secondary schools because the boys have started waving the sanitary towels around, doing jokes with tampons and even piddling in their sanitary bins. Now, you know, this is, it, we could all have seen this coming. When, when you, the whole idea of unisex toilets for teenage children is mental. It really is. And, and <laughs> I know it's, it's, you're supposed to foster diversity and inclusivity and all that stuff. And it's cheap for the builders. But, you know, it doesn't work for kids. I, I tell you this, in our local hall, village hall, they put in unisex toilets. And the old ladies don't like it either. And the old men don't like it either because people don't like sharing that kind of intimate space. So anyway, I I, no, I, I give up. Sorry. Yeah. The, it's, it's always, James, it's a sort of, um, you know, the, the fantasy created by Ali McBeal uh, where everyone was just, you know, happily washing their hands and having a chat about their legal work in the toilets. That's a long way from reality. Yes, but I must admit, I, I quite like the idea of unisex loos because uh, oh, no. I always think that men... No, because men's loos, and Matt will know this, and Matt will know the precisely what I'm talking about. Men's loos can be just so disgusting. <laughs> but I, mean, that we will Are you, I think you're talking about the ones, the, the men's toilets in the press gallery in the House of the yes. Parliament, which are <laughs> revolting. Uh, in yeah. so in so many ways, the only place I, I think, I, think I, I mean I, I know I know there are other reasons why, but I don't think a a, a, a lady's loo would I mean would obviously wouldn't have a urinal, but a, but a permanently leaking urinal would have been fixed. Yes. If, it was, if it was in the ladies, <laughs> that is true. The only place which is worse than the gents' toilets in the press gallery is the office beneath the gents' toilets in the press gallery, where where things <laughs> run down the walls. Oh boy, this is too much information, boys. <laughs> Honestly. Honestly. And yet and yet and yet we mustn't rush into refurbishing Parliament. We definitely need to stop and think about that. I definitely remember I'm not sure is it Ben Bradshaw, I think, um has got the office, but he always definitely had 
basically sewage coming down his walls uh, at various points in the House of Commons, and people have had to go and have injections and that sort of thing. Melanie Reed and James Forsyth, then, of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is James Graham. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. This is an ABC colour presentation. To help us extract meaning from these conventions, two of America's most eloquent and most decided commentators have joined us this year. They are Gore Vidal. Tonight, the key question for every patriot is, can an ageing Hollywood juvenile actor with a right-wing script defeat Richard Nixon, a professional politician who currently represents no discernible interest except his own. And William F. Buckley, Jr. We were treated to Mr. Gore Vidal, the playwright, saying uh, that after all, Ronald Reagan was nothing more than a, quote, aging Hollywood juvenile actor. Now, to begin with, everybody is aging. (laughs) Uh, even uh, even you uh, are, the Bill. Dollar, you are. Yes, yeah, so, so Perceptively before so, so therefore, and Then he said Hollywood. Now, one was either acted in Hollywood during the time Mr. Reagan acted, or one didn't uh, act uh, at all. Uh, Mr. Vidal <laughs> sends all of his books to Hollywood, many of which are, are rejected. Shut up a minute. No, I won't. And some people were thrown at me, and the answer is that they were, they were well-treated by people who ostracized them, and I'm for ostracizing people who egg on other people to shoot American Marines and American soldiers. As I know you don't as care. As far as I'm concerned, the only sort of pro-crypto-Nazi yes. I can think of is yourself. Failing that, 
That's, I would that's, only that's say that we names. can't have. Now listen, you the right of Stop calling here. me a crypto let's, let's stop or calling I'll names. Stop you in your goddamn face. Let's and you'll stay plastered. Gentlemen, let's oh, Bill, let the author of Myra Brackenridge go back to his pornography and stop making any illusions of nationalism. I beg somebody you to was infantry in the last war. You were not an infantry. As a matter of fact, I was an James, why did you decide to recreate the conversations of two men who almost no one in Britain has heard of that happened half a century ago? For those two reasons. I mean, I, I, I just get very, very uh, excited and always have about finding these very obscure pockets of our recent history uh, that somehow seem to speak to the anxieties in the moment we're living through today. Nothing is new, as you said. Everything has an origin somewhere. And I think the more surprising um, places we can find those origins, the, the better. And I'm a massive, I'm probably the second biggest political nerd in this room behind you. And I, I pride myself on knowing all the strangest um, elements of our, of our political history. And yet I had no idea. I'd absolutely never come across until this film, this documentary of these, these debates and how new they were on, on network television in America in 1968. And these two men who absolutely loathed each other, but were placed in a situation uh, on television where they were trying to, I think, uh, sincerely elevate the discourse, have a proper discussion between right and left, and yet it went quite badly, notoriously, live on television. It got very personal, and, and yet the ratings exploded. It was a massive hit, and as a consequence, um, sort of debate that was very um, aggressive between one side and the other became the norm and talking became arguing essentially and that became the norm. But why take something so obscure and I, what, what really interested me about this particular conversation was trying to work out are they two intellectuals who want to educate America about the big questions they face? Yeah. Or are they what we would now call a couple of media tarts who will take the call from BBC News, Sky News, GB News, Times Rate, whatever? You know, are they, or maybe they fell into that during the course of the conversation? Well, they were the, they were the prototype, they were, of, of celebrity pundits. And I would say they were slightly more... Um, had slightly more uh, sort of weight behind them and sincerity behind them than possibly, not to diminish anyone, but the, the, the renter gobs that you're talking about that come on these shows and try and say the most sort of controversial thing or the most easily clippable thing for social media. These were 15 minutes of debate every single night on, on primetime network television where they talked about the economy, society, philosophy, the history of America, big themes. And, and, and I think they went into that sincerely they wanted to put their side uh, across and this was 1968 uh, a moment not unlike the moment we're living through now which feels quite dangerous it feels like it is unsustainable um, how, how warring these sides are so you had the riots in Chicago the civil rights movement an impossible number of people get, kept getting shot and assassinated from Martin Luther King to Bobby Kennedy it felt like the world was on fire and these two men sat down in front of each other and had 15 minutes a night to really, really talk. Um, I don't know whether it's their fault that it turned into a, a slangy match, personal insults, hugely bitchy, uh, or whether that is just the tragedy of human nature, that ultimately when we are asked to be at our very best, we sometimes become our very worst. And I think that's what makes it a play. I think it's very, I find it very moving, the gap between what was hoped for and aspired for 
uh, and, and human nature failing, as, as it always does. Jeremy, let me bring you in here. You directed this house, which listeners of the show will, will almost certainly know about. This, this, even that felt nerdy. It was a drama set in the Whip's office of the 1970s. And then James comes along and says, I've found something even more niche. It's two people most Brits haven't heard of sitting on chairs and arguing. How do you bring that to the stage? Well, um, yeah. apart, from, apart from buying two chairs, presumably. Uh, well, we've got more than that. We've got a cast of uh, 10 who are fulfilling all sorts of different roles and jumping. A bit like this house, actually, doing lots of, you know, a, a surprising a, a number of characters popping up uh, and taking us back to that time and making us laugh and making us think. Um, but I suppose the, you know, James has got an instinct for making those obscure stories relevant and there's a time on a tradition in writing contemporary plays by looking at the past and you know it was good enough for Shakespeare, it's good enough for, for James so it feels like a, a good way in um, and a surprising way in it flatters the audience I think if you get it right because they end up learning about something that maybe would have passed under and, and having, the, having the pleasure of discovering a story that's really dramatic underneath there and and they were pretty famous at the time, weren't they, Buckley yeah. and Vidal? And Vidal, you know, was a very successful writer. So it is interesting to see what we sort of remember of these characters and to really look at what they were like and what might have been um, motivating them at the time. And I suppose like any sort of Shakespearean drama, you know, the, the characters, you put the characters under real pressure and their essential natures reveal themselves. Um, and so it all seemed like a great idea at the time, at the beginning of the Miami Convention in 68. By the time we'd left Chicago, <laughs> they'd been through only two weeks' worth of debates that resonated sort of, you know, with great volume down the rest of their lives. So There's, something, there's something about them slightly meeting their match, that Gore Vidal meeting someone less good could have done ten minutes and that would have been fine. Yeah. But meeting his match constantly, William Buckley and vice versa, each contest elevated, you know, the next one was even greater than the next one. You know, Gore Vidal clearly done lots of research into William Buckley for the first round at the yeah. Republican Convention. By the Democratic Convention, William Buckley's done loads of research. So it's that, it's that sort of human instinct of just, never mind the politics, never mind the ideas, I'm going to beat you. You made me look stupid last time, I'm going to beat you. Yeah, I mean, you know, ultimately, as... as um Patricia Buckley says, you know, it's a, it, it boils down to who do the American public like the most? Yeah. And in a way, despite their kind of high aspirations for, you know, erudition and debate and, um, you know, making it a real contest of ideas, ultimately it boiled down to how do you get the message across? And there is something, you know, the play, it's interesting doing a play about television and, and enjoying the theatricality of it. Uh, you know, it's interesting that TV sometimes seems to flatten ideas out and theatre if, if you get it right often adds a further dimension and encourages a sense of contradiction and, and nuance and, and we hope that whatever your politics when you step into to watch Best of Enemies that you might you know you might come out respecting the person whose politics you would have disagreed with at the, at the start of the show so it feels complex in that way. And that's the really interesting thing um, uh, James about the, it's very absolutist. You've got two people, and this is what we see on the TV all the time. 
one person from one side, one person on the other side, and they fight it out to the death. And it's very absolutist. And what's really striking about what was two intellectuals going at it about ideas very quickly becomes not who has got the best ideas, but who is the better person. And that's what ultimately we're living through now in politics. Instead of saying, I disagree with you, I'm not sure that will work, politics now is, you're a bad person. On both sides. Right calls the left, left calls the right. And that's 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 a... It's amazing it's been going on for 50 years, but it's really striking how we like to think that politics is about ideas, and it's, it's not really. No, I mean, I mean, these are things we explored in this house a lot as well, that um, ultimately these, you know, this house was about a minority government um, desperately trying to pass laws, laws that they think would help the country advance in this direction, socialist or in a, a monetarist way. But ultimately it's also about people who have financial problems and are sleeping with the wrong people and get very upset or very stressed, and how the whip's office deal with those very human moments and I think that's how politics and that's how history often turns on on people dealing with people and you're right I mean I I think um, it's definitely true that in 1968 50 years ago two men sat opposite each other on television and did find it very personal it wasn't just um, a disagreement of ideas about the best way forward on the economy both thought the other person was actively dangerous and that they had a moral responsibility to show that in front of the, the public. And instead of going for the, um, the contradictions or the, uh, the, um, the intellectual weaknesses in the arguments very quickly, within about four minutes of the first debate, they got very personal and they said, this, this, man, this man's character, based on his lifestyle, in the case of Gore Vidal, Buckley, often heavily implied his sexuality or his lack of monogamy or his, his lifestyle was, was reason to, di- to, to disenfranchise him politically, just became the norm. I th- so yeah, it's really worrying. It's the thing, I don't know about you, Germany, it's the thing I would say that worries me most at the moment in the world. If, of all the things I think terrifies me from the climate crisis to generational inequality, how we actually talk to each other or don't talk to each other and the anger uh, and the hate between different sides, completely arbitrary, falsely binary, reductively simple sides, seems so unrepairable, I don't know what to do, except writing very niche possible plays uh, in London. <laughs> well, they but, are uh, a big fan of them. they're very good. What do you think, Jeremy, is that...? Well, I think, yeah, I think that's right. I think your, your plays, your work often, you know, begs the question about how do, you, how do we make democracy work, you know, rather than reduce it, turn it into a binary, turn it into something yeah. that is... The, the, the stuff of democracy is, is properly complicated and it feels like the, the real fuel for democracy is the ability to listen and the ability to change one's mind and to adapt. But our positions are so declared yeah. up front um, that that feels really, really impossible. And actually, you know, there's a great little bit at the end of, uh, end of our show where... Um, Buckley and Vidal speak about what they think is, is going to happen in, in the future. And, you know, it was wonderful to basically see them predict what was going to happen to our discourse in 1968 and unknowingly be part of that journey, you know. So it feels rich territory for all of those reasons. There's an explosive moment. What began as a reasonably civilised discussion about ideas, there was an explosive moment where, well, Gore Vidal accuses William Buckley of being a crypto-Nazi 
William Buckley's calls Gore Vidal a queer and then threatens to knock his block off. Let's take if it, it is a novelty in Chicago, that is too bad. But I assume that for the point of the American democracy, yeah. and some you can express Nazi, any some point of view you want. Shut up a minute. No, I won't. And some people were pro-Nazi, and the answer is that they were, they were well-treated by people who ostracized them, and I'm for ostracizing people who egg on other people to shoot American Marines and American soldiers. As I know you don't as care. As far as I'm concerned, the only sort of pro-crypto-Nazi uh, I can think of is yourself. Failing that, let's, I would only say that we names. can't have now listen, you the queer. right of the Stop calling me a crypto-Nazi. Let's, let's stop calling I'll names. I'll you in your goddamn get... face, and let's... you'll stay plastered. Gentlemen, let's... Oh, Bill. Go back to his pornography and stop making any allusions of Nazism. So James Graham, the, the thing that really struck me, re-watching lots of the debates, finding them on YouTube, disappearing down rabbit holes and that sort of thing, is that it starts with the best of intentions. Let's have big conversations about the role of the state, the role of the police, taxation, war and peace, and yet... The thing that I'm drawn to again and again is two blokes having a row and threatening to punch each other in the face. Yeah. And so I'm not drawn to the discussion about Vietnam. I'm drawn to the drama of two people having an argument. And, and then I just think, well, I'm part of the problem. That's why we are with the mess we are. This is why TV producers book people to have an argument, not to try and solve. We don't want to solve. We don't really want to solve the world's problems. We just want to see a punch up. I think you're doing yourself down because I think you, I think you love all you think you love all aspects of our political discourse, including the very personal stuff and, and the very um, the very uh, ideological stuff. And and but you, I mean you're right. Look, the reason why we're doing this play is there was a moment that shocked the world. Uh, the whole world was watching, as we know, in 1968, and and that is the moment that that has a legacy throughout history. When um, for the first time in what had been an incredibly well mannered dignified world of 1960s American television where everyone had a moustache and everyone was very serious and impartial and dignified. Words that had never been heard in the homes of America before were screamed at each other against the backdrop of these political conventions, including, as you said, queer and Nazi and so on. And it got, you know, the imagery was, um, they, got, they got pretty damn close to swinging at each other. Um, and yes, it is exciting. Um, I also still find it very uh, sad. I find it tragic. I find, I find William F. Buckley, who was the one who made that threat of physical violence to Gore Vidal, he is not on my end of the political spectrum. He's, he's got views which come from a time um, in the 1960s, the conservative right, very traditional Christian values. Um, and he was all about his, his, you know, the, the creed that went through him like a stick of rock was that we will only survive as a society if we have civil discourse. And he loses it on national television in the worst possible way, at the worst possible time, and agree with him or not, and I imagine possibly most of the theatre audience won't agree with his politics. I think the play will succeed on trying to get them to feel great empathy for his loss of dignity yeah. when that is entirely what he invested himself in. And also I think there's a kind of schadenfreude there, but for the grace of God go I. We are all terrified. Of, 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 of being shamed, of losing it publicly, of, of, making, of sending the wrong tweet. I feel it every day on the radio. There is a moment where I just want, sometimes I just really want to shout at someone. Yeah. And you just know you should, but you're that close. It's, it's, it's a hair's breadth all Everybody's the time. All, yeah, we yeah. are all, especially because we are all now public figures, we yeah. are all publishers on a platform. We are one tweet, one wrong comment away from destroying our reputation. 
And I think that's where I, I, I find that thrilling to watch, moving and interesting. But also I do think, like, one, I, I, I listen to these debates and yes, they do become very petty and insulting. I hope, Matt, we can seduce you into, into, into really enjoying the language before we get to that point when they're trying to kill each other. And I, I don't know, maybe it is just the nerds of the world, but I find them, they're like symphonies. The, the language they're using and the way they speak with these sort of faux British mid-Atlantic accents, it's, I find it incredibly seductive and, and impressive that an, 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 a, te- a TV network would have allowed these men with this kind of language. Well, there's something about the, the sort of competitiveness of ideas and vocabulary. Yeah. Yeah. Today... The dumbing down would be, well, I'm not going to try and make a nuanced, interesting position you, you using complicated words. The opposite normally happens. Yes. And so in that sense... I know it's embarrassing, isn't it, when you watch a politician try to pretend that they, uh, they, they didn't get the education that they've got and yes. they're going down the pub to get a pint. And this is the stock which Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage uh, claimed their credibility on. These men didn't care about that. They were using the impossibly sophisticated um, words. Uh, and, I did, yeah, I, so I, I also what I, what I admire as a writer... Um, is yes, there was this poetry, they, they spoke in poetry, but there is also this incredible precision to what they're saying. And you, as a political interviewer, must pull your hair out sometimes at the modern political interview, which is all about avoiding saying yeah. the thing. In only, only yesterday I had an MP ask a simple question three times. Give me one example of something and just got a sort of wave of waffle. Yeah, so of course. It's, it's all about diversion, not actually. It's not talking, yeah, yeah. it's the opposite of talking. Yeah. And in, the, in, in Chicago, Gore Vidal looks down the lens on national television and says, these are terrible times, and we need revolutionary solutions to it. And he, so even though it's, it's poetry, he also just does that thing by going, this is the thing, yeah, and yeah. we need to talk about it. And I find that so refreshing and so depressing <laughs> that we have the opposite political culture today. Jeremy, when you're directing something, how much do you egg up the modern-day parallels? And how much you sort of leave there hoping that... Because sometimes... Some, I've been seeing stuff where it's a bit like, this is like Brexit. And, you know, I know that. I've worked that out for myself. So how do you, as a director, how do you make sure that everyone is with you in getting the sense of what's going on without it looking sort of too obvious? That's such a great question. I suppose, you know, a lot of that's in the writing and the, and the work that we did on, you know, on the play and the, dis- discussion, discuss- the discussions around what the parallels are. And James very cleverly selected a kind of lens through which to view what happens then. So it feels like I don't have to fake it and make it inauthentic. We can play as if we're in 1968 but the ideas that will pop out to a modern audience are there for them to find. I think it's really, you know, one of the great things about theatre is that, that the audience does have agency when they come to it. It's not, um, we're not spoon-feeding anybody, but hopefully the material is there, um, t- enough material is there for them to dig into it and be really stimulated. And on the top level, there's a kind of melody of the plot that's pretty simple. So if you don't want to dig into it, you can still have fun. And there's, you know, we have moments where we do some of the kind of popular culture at the time to show some of the ideas in different ways. We've got some songs and um, hopefully a few um, scenes that are funny in themselves. But if you want to dig in, you can find all of those parallels because um, James has done such a great job at 
uh, working out how to present what was going on in 1968 in a way that really, I think, is illuminating about what's happening now. So, you know, it's there, but uh, if you have to work too hard, then you, it, it's inauthentic. Yeah. So. Just finally, I want to ask you both, um, what is it that you think the James and Jeremy of 50 years' time would be digging around in, in politics today that would speak to what's really going on? Because we get bogged down and, oh, did Rishi Sunak's team say something about Boris Johnson? Blah, blah, blah. But what, what, if you could get into a time machine now and write a play about politics in 2021, what would you be... What do you think is interesting you'd like to get a handle on? That is, yeah, good. I mean, I... Oh, my God. Uh, I mean, the thing that you're yeah. great at, I'll just jump in, because the Thank thing you. that you're great at is looking in the corners where no one else is looking. And so if you answer that question honestly, someone else will probably write your name. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's yeah. least yeah. trust the movie. Exactly, so don't yeah. tell anybody. <laughs> no, but you're actually, I hadn't thought of that, but I, I, I had only noticed a few years ago that that is accidentally, or by design, one of the strategies I have, which is um, going through a weird side entrance to, to the main story. And actually, so people always say, oh, are you going to write the next Dominic Cummings instalment? And of course I'm not, because the reason why I wrote that four years ago was no one knew who Dominic Cummings was. Yeah. Everyone knew the so referendum campaign. Well, we could discuss that. <laughs> uh, and I do get emails from some people saying, this is all your fault, including Alice Campbell and the like. Uh, and maybe that's true. I don't think it is. I but, think um, it's Dominic Cummings' fault. As much as I would argue he's yeah. the one who's responsible for the state we're in. So, You're very no, clever so, at spotting that actually that was where, that's where the story was, is somebody yeah. making big changes and pulling all other levers. That yeah the general public didn't know about that. And actually, yeah, and it's more know. interesting for, that's the treat of what, I mean, news can do a lot of things, as we know. If you're gonna, if you're gonna dramatize uh, a real life event, you have to go, well, what is the purpose of that? What can a play or a film do that a, a documentary or a news bulletin can't? And it is to get into these, access these worlds that are not available to us except through art and imagination, and then go under the human skin of the people that drive it. So I think one moment I would pick, and I don't even know if it's right, because basically we did it in this house, Jeremy, but I was so, I can't believe that the craziness of the world has tumbled so quickly forward that we've completely forgotten that moment in 2019, the proroguing of Parliament and the chaos of Parliament. So if we were doing a this house too, I think... That would be it. Those scenes where Labour MPs were diving on top of John Burke to stop him from standing up and walking to the House of Lords to illegally close uh, our palace of democracy. I can't believe that's now the least interesting thing that's <laughs> happened in two years. So it was a, a responsibility to remind an audience that I think there's something about that building under the stress that we saw in this house again what it says about where we are and where we're going. It's perfect James Gray material. It's incredibly niche, it's quite a complicated procedure, but it's got loads of drama, yeah. and it tells you something about the bigger nation. Honestly, I could talk to you for ages, but thank you so much for joining us. Best of luck, when does it open, Best of Enemies? We open uh, next week, which uh, first preview on the 4th of December, uh, and we'll go through to next year. There we are. That was uh, James Graham and Jeremy Herring uh, talking to me about their new play, Best of Enemies, which is on at the Young Vic. And like I said, uh, tickets are on sale now. And uh, it starts next week and I think runs right the way through to the end of the year. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.